0: It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach LA. I am very excited uh, to commence our August sermon series, Redeeming Relationships. Today, sex. Next week, yes. Yes. Next week, Nick is going to preach on peacemaking. Uh, The following Sunday, I'm going to preach on divorce. And then the last Sunday of the month, My mentor and my pastor, Bill Doctrum, is going to preach on singleness. We're going to spend a month delving into relationships because life is relationships. Life is the exploration. It's the encounter of other souls under the care of God. So we hope to reveal during this series that God wants to invade your relationships. All of them. Familial, romantic, work, neighborly. God's work in L.A. is a redemptive work. He redeems things. He makes things whole. He makes things new. He sets people free. And since life is relationships, God's efforts are going to highly involve the relationships that you have. It's going to highly involve redeeming the relationships that make up your world. So to set up the series, I would like to suggest that your life will be redemptive in nature only to the extent that your relationships are redemptive in nature. So we're going to unpack some of these significant relational elements over the next month to see how God might be at work in them today. Sex. We're going to get real in here. I want to talk about hypersexuality. I want to talk about porn and masturbation and culture and scripture and toxic sexuality and redeemed sexuality. Jesus is not intimidated by by conversation about sex. Um, He's not weirded out by it because he invented it. So he's okay with it. And my thoughts, if you can't have real conversations about sex in your church, you should probably find a new church. Church is supposed to be real and authentic life lived together. So we're going to talk about sex today. You ready? This morning, my message entitled, Redeeming Sex. And since since this this conversation, since this content carries so much weight, I want to open with prayer because I really want God's covering over this, God thank you for another opportunity to be together to be the church, to encounter you. I pray that you would meet us in this in the the power that this conversation conceals, Lord, would you give it um, weight to land on our hearts and to put roots down deep? We ask this in faith in your name. Amen. I remember the first time I saw a pornographic image. I was ten or eleven years old. I was at a friend 's house. Uh, We were out in a field near his house, throwing rocks, getting dirty. Um, We kind of stumbled upon this page that was just laying on the ground. It was crumbled. It was torn. And I remember seeing this image of a woman posing in a way that I'd never seen before. Uh, I remember feeling confused, a little scared, ashamed, not even entirely sure what I was looking at. Uh, Innocence assaulted that day. The second time I saw a pornographic image, maybe a year later, was at a friend's house again. A few of the guys were sleeping over. My friend asked if we wanted to see something cool. So we waited until his parents were asleep. He took us to the computer, and this was back when we had dial-up internet, you know, so push sign on. It was like, remember that noise, right? So he like put the beanbag chair on top of the modem. He took us to a website. Silence hit the room, and then some awkward laughs as these unusual chemicals and hormones rushed through our bodies. It was one step further through a door into a new world, a door through which I could not return. Sex permeates nearly every aspect of American culture and life. We don't just live in a sexual society, we live in a hypersexual society. And hypersexuality, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, it's not without effects. What I want to communicate today is that hypersexuality it elicits real consequences for real people. Not just in our minds but in our bodies, in our relationships, in our industries, in our creativity, in our contentment. And we're so frequently exposed to hypersexuality that we're often oblivious to the numbing effect that it has on us. Just think of the advertising that you see in a normal day. Whether it's for a movie or a car, or a toothbrush, or Perrier, or cat food. You could sell something easier if you throw in some tan long legs or a sculpted six pack. TV, movies, gaming, literature, social media, it's true, sex sells. And I know we live in a capitalistic society, I get that. But maybe as a people, we should stop a little more frequently to ask a simple question. At what cost does sex sell? When we use sex to sell things, what does it actually cost humanity? What does it cost our bodies? What does it cost our relationships, our psyches? You see, advertising, it's fueled by this message that that you're never going to be good enough just the way you are. The aim is to make us feel like we're lacking, that we're missing out, that we have to add something to our lives or change our lives in order for us to be content. But when gender stereotypes, when obsession with body image, when that saturates us on a daily basis, we should not be surprised by the consequences that begin to surface. Real consequences for real people. Studies are showing that the ambush of sexualized images that young people see in media and pop culture, it's created a mental health crisis. Depression, low self-esteem, eating disorders, skyrocketing. In a hyper-capitalistic society, profit is the only thing that matters. It's all that counts. Meaning it doesn't matter if people get destroyed on the way there. All that we're concerned with is, did we make more money than we did last year? Even if people get run over on on the way there. Even if it's kids. All that matters is the bottom line. Did our profits increase? In a city like L.A., you can barely go outside without being exposed to sexualized advertising, sexualized marketing. My daughter's three, and we're already starting to have having to navigate these waters. I don't know if you've seen the pink van that parks on the west side advertising topless maid service. It's a big pink van with this like silhouette of a topless woman. We drive by it all the time because it's on Bundy. And uh, Aria asked me about it a few weeks ago. We're stopped at a red light. It's sitting right there, and she's like, Daddy, why is that lady naked? Hypersexuality produces real consequences. And we're forced to deal with these things. You're forced to deal with these consequences. And even if it's not close to home, it impacts us. How often do we hear about sex scandals? Broken marriages because of unfulfilled expectations or cheating spouses or porn porn addictions. Moral failures of ministers. Girls being seduced by pimps into sex trafficking, even here in L.A. It's not just boys being boys. It's not just innocent locker room banter. It's deep and systemic relational breakdown. And it elicits severe consequences in real people's lives. You know, I find it interesting that our word for sex comes from the Latin sicare, which means to sever or amputate or to disconnect from the whole. Humanity appears broken, detached from itself, amputated from each other, and sex carries this concealed power to unite what has been severed. Ironically, though, our hypersexuality seems to continue sexing us from each other while we're aching for unity, while we're longing for wholeness. Now, you might be getting the vibe today that I think sex is problematic. Oh, quite the contrary. Sex is beautiful. I love sex. Thank you, Jesus, for inventing sex. Please hear this. While while hypersexuality is a problem, sex is not a problem. It's a gift. Sex is not a problem. It's a gift. Christianity does serious damage when it offers this thin and dualistic approach to life and sexuality. That the body is inherently bad. That only spirit is good. So we need to avoid experiencing sexual pleasure because it's immoral or it's this fleshly craving. That's an immature, it's an uninformed approach to life and spirituality. And it doesn't honor the scriptures, actually. The Hebrew scriptures, the Bible that we read today, it reveals this much more integrated picture of the human being. The biblical writers, oh, I love it, they believe that the divine breath breathed into Adam and Eve that God indwells the soul, which is the body and the spirit. Just for fun, you should take a ride through the Song of Songs. <laughs> it's this erotic ride through the scriptures, I'm telling you. It's like ancient, sacred Fifty Shades. And just to be clear, it's not just a metaphor for how much God loves his people. It might include that message, but the Song of Songs is clearly an unapologetically erotic poetry. A little taste for you, if you've never, never gone for it. The bride says, listen, my beloved is knocking. I'm take, I've taken off my robe. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh on the handles of the bolt. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. His body is like polished ivory. His legs are pillars of marble. His mouth is sweetness itself. Some of you guys blood pumping a little bit right now, yeah? The groom. He says, your graceful legs are like jewelry. Your navel, a rounded goblet that never lacks wine. Your breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I will climb that palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine. The fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. This is Bible. Okay? It's stroking the imagination regarding lips and navels and breasts. It's relishing in human sensuality. God is not playing some nasty trick on us, that he created us to get excited about bodies and about beauty, that he fashioned sexual attraction and arousal in us, but then he gets pissed off at us for leaning into it. No. When God created in the beginning, he said over and over that to his creation, that it's good. Everything that makes up the human soul, this is very good. The church does lasting damage when it represses and when it shames this natural and good thing. All right, well, if God made it and it's good, shouldn't we just go for it then? Well, here's the thing. Sex is good. But because sexual identity is so deep, because the drive, the sexual drive is buried so deep in the bedrock of our personhood, we need to approach our sexuality with serious care. Sex offers so much power. And the, this is really important. The more power that something carries, the more potential it has for good, the more potential it also carries for destruction. The higher the high, the lower the low. Think of money or politics or religion or fame or marriage or parenting. Sex, it's, it's incredible power, latent Potential for changing the world, potential for damaging the world. So we have to carry this, respons- this responsibility responsibly. Now, this is, this is really fun. I think in a, in a psychological sense, generally speaking, we have four basic needs for survival. You can get more nuanced with it, but with this, like, bro, bro, like this broad stroke, we have four essential psychological needs, security, self-esteem, autonomy, and connection. Like at a very basic level, we're wired for security, self-esteem, autonomy, and connection. And to live a healthy life, to live a content life, you need all four of these met regularly, consistently. And I think God created us so brilliantly because we, we just kind of like naturally do this. Unless there's something deeply psychologically wrong with us, we do this intuitively we engage in activities where these four things are met without even really thinking about it, like education and sports, social media, the arts, exercise, sometimes in more obviously destructive ways like drug or alcohol abuse or overeating or abusive relationships. Now, here's what's interesting. Psychologists say that sex is a strategy we use to meet those needs, that sex is not itself a need. How do we know this? Because there's no evidence that shows a lack of sex to be a damaging to be damaging to the human person in, in really any way. Now I'm not saying that people shouldn't have sex. Sex is awesome. The point I'm making is this drive. It's a drive. We don't hear about people committing suicide because they're too horny. People take their lives because there's a lack of self-esteem, because of a lack of connection with other people. And here's why this is important. Because people use the excuse. Or people excuse toxic sexuality, toxic sexual activity, by defining this thing as a drive that we can't turn off. It's like eating, or it's like sleeping, it's biology, it's chemistry. God made us this way. And while there's an element of truth to this, what's also true is that you can go your entire life without sex, and you could be not any worse off really for it. In fact, it might even benefit you. Physically, it might even benefit you. We have this inbuilt power to exercise self-control whenever we want. You don't have to have sex. That's just true. And even, let's say even if you want to just view your sex drive like eating, can we at least agree on the fact that there are both destructive and life-giving ways that we can relate to food? Let's just, let's just I'm going to take this side tangent for a second. America has been told for too long, eat whatever you want, Eat whenever you want, just exercise it off. Or take a pill. Or have a surgery. Don't let anyone tell you that you have to change. Self-control is not freedom. And where do we find ourselves? Forty percent of Americans struggle with obesity. Cancer rates, rising, all types of cancer. Eating out is one of the top priorities in the American budget. People are addicted to cancer-causing food. But eating is not the problem. Eating is not problematic. That, yes, God designed that. If you're educated in food science at all, you know that food has healing power. God made it this way. Food is awesome. Simply changing what you eat can heal your body of sickness and disease. That's fascinating that God made it that way. And anybody whose life has been transformed by food, by transforming their diet, they will tell you that eating healthy is not limiting, it's freeing. That they're not bound by food anymore. So I'll make the argument that our lack of self-control with food is actually similar to our lack of control when it comes to sex in America. Porn and masturbation, objectification and lust, sex with strangers, cheating on spouses, multiple partners, uncontrolled sexuality leads to a kind of soul obesity, emotional, relational cancer, addiction to sexual hunger, sex is not the problem. How we relate to sex is the problem. So this morning, I want to highlight three factors that produce toxic sexuality in us. And I'm not going to claim that they are only three factors. It's not a comprehensive list, but these are three factors that no doubt are severing us from each other and from ourselves sexually. So the first one is this. Relationships turn toxic when sex vacates covenant. Toxic sexuality vacates covenant. Now, I want to come at this one kind of from a side door. I think the church has gotten skilled at using the language of sin when it comes to sex without explaining sin or sex well. Does that make sense? (laughs) So God made sex for marriage, for covenant. So if you're disobedient, you better watch out. But sin is not about getting trouble in trouble with God. It's not about us letting him down or putting a wall between us and God. Sin is the breakdown of our wholeness. You were created, you were designed, you were intended to be a whole person. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially whole persons. And what sin does is it takes your capacity for wholeness, it takes your ability to be complete and it pressurizes it. It coats the whole thing with rust. It it eats at it like a parasite, and what it does is it convinces us to, to settle for destructive thought patterns, for destructive behaviors and worldviews, a destructive way of being in the world. You see, a holistic view of Scripture, when we look at the whole thing, Scripture shows us that sex was designed for covenant relationship, that sex is good And that sex carries this ability to unite souls together, kind of like the union that we see shared in the Trinity. It's this like dancing of souls that happens. But scripture is bold in its command that the only way sex will cause souls to come alive, that the only way sex causes souls to flourish is when it's protected by covenant relationship. So yes, sex outside of marriage is sin. But sin is not about God's frustration with you. Sin is about your destruction. Here's what it does. It convinces us that broken ways of living won't break us. Sex was designed for covenant because it's too powerful. It's too heavy to exist outside covenant. Without covenant, sin breaks people. But our culture loves to push back against this, right? Rules on sexuality, don't let anyone squash your comfort. You get to choose for your life. You get to choose and determine your destiny. God doesn't understand how we feel. He doesn't understand these hormones. Or he does, and he's just being cruel. You're free. Do what you want. But if you're wise, you know that freedom is not without authority. True freedom always exists under authority. Otherwise, we end up with anarchy. We end up destroying ourselves on the way to freedom. You see, the case I guess I want to make here is that this is not merely about right We're wrong. This is about functionality and God's compassion for us. Scripture shows us that God is not being cruel, that he's not being limited. He's being protective. He says, trust me, I invented sex. I know what it's actually for. I know how it's best used. Inside covenant, it is awesome. Outside covenant, you have no idea how complex the destruction is. Think of fences at a zoo. Naive or ignorant children might get frustrated that they can't go play with the silverback gorillas. What's with these fences? Doesn't the zookeeper care about us having fun? He says he built this for my enjoyment, but if he really cared, he'd take down all the fences at the zoo. How stupid, right? If this concern were brought to the zookeeper, his response would be something like Don't you realize, young child? Defense is the only thing keeping you alive in here. I believe God looks at humanity and says, don't you realize, young children, when it comes to sex, covenant is the only thing keeping you alive in here. So what is covenant? In covenant relationship, both parties agree to hold up their ends of the deal regardless of whether or not the other person follows through with their part. A violation of the covenant it does not negate the covenant. And this is what true marriage is. This is what biblical marriage is. It's covenant marriage. And it's intended to reflect God's commitment to us, to us. Covenant relationship. He says, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you think, I'm committed to you. I will be forever faithful to you. And I'm going to hold up my end of this deal even though you won't end up, hold up your end of the deal. That's covenant. And this is why we say vows at weddings. I vow to love you in action. Even when our money situation gets tough, even when you're not kind to me, even though you won't always look this attractive, even when this gets really inconvenient, I'm not going anywhere. Again, if you read through the entirety of the scriptures, it's clear. Sex was designed for this kind of relationship. And this is what causes sex to catalyze a relationship rather than destroy it because I know you're not going anywhere. I can give you the most valuable and authentic version of myself, and I can trust that you're going to receive it, and that you're going to hold it carefully, and that you won't share that part of you with anybody else but me. But outside covenant, fear, hiding, shame, blame, the misuse of power, they tend to pollute sex. So when sex vacates covenant, relationships turn toxic really quick. The second one, relationships turn toxic when sex depersonalizes the other. Toxic sexuality depersonalizes the other. Here's the thing. In highly sexualized environments, the natural result is the dehumanization of persons. Hypersexual settings, what they do is they empower us, they set us up to rip the soul out from the other person and use them as a collection of body parts. Enter the porn industry. An industry that continues to grow with fascinating speed. I read this week that porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. That's astounding. And as a society, we're becoming more and more okay with the industry oblivious to its destructive tendency and its destructive elements on our lives. I read that over 40% of Americans say pornography is morally acceptable. And let's say you find nothing morally problematic about two people having sex on screen, that it's just art. What we at least have to acknowledge is that pornography has evolved over time and that extreme is the new norm. Over 80% of leading pornographic scenes include physical aggression, most of it directed toward women. And the numbers keep going up on teen porn searches. Now you might think, I'm not into the aggressive stuff. I just like the soft stuff, the romantic stuff. The problem is it's very difficult to remain there because as time goes by, the reward center in your brain, it communicates to the rest of your body that you need more and that you need more intense just to receive the same amount of pleasure. And because the brain is so complex, because God wired us so masterfully when it comes to sexuality, even the soft stuff impacts you in ways far beyond your comprehension. Did you know that the more porn a man watches, the more he needs to conjure up pornographic images in his mind to keep arousal? Porn doesn't just turn men into these ravaging sexual beasts. Actually, studies show that porn reduces men to be less sexually responsive to the woman that's actually in front of him. Men are trained to have sex like a porn star with a woman who looks like a porn star. So when they show up to their real lives, Rather than cherishing the man that he is and cherishing the woman that's in front of him, he's trained to rate his performance off of the performance he's watched over and over again. And and porn is not just a problematic for for guys. It's not just a guy thing. Women use porn much differently, but between 15% and 30% of women describe themselves as addicted to porn. Porn affects women's expectations for showing up to the bedroom. It impacts their self-esteem outside the bedroom. It diminishes their ability to deal with emotional, damaging emotional trauma that they've gone through. I also read this week that there's a positive correlation between the amount of pornography a person watches and higher levels of narcissism and decreased amounts of gray matter in the brain. That's fascinating. Porn affects our brains and our relationships in ways we don't even know how to talk about. Because we are such complex creations. It's like kindergartners trying to do calculus. We just can't keep up on this one. This is far too advanced for us. And I want to throw this point in here too. When you allow porn or or culture even for that matter, when you give culture or porn permission to inform and define your version or your definition of sexuality and sexy, your spouse or your future spouse will eventually fall short if they don't already. The porn industry wants you to believe that watching porn won't negatively affect your life, that it's just sexual art. The truth is, it is art, but it's toxic. Because what it doesn't do is celebrate the value and the worth of individuals. It inherently degrades and dehumanizes. The porn industry wants us to believe that watching porn doesn't have an impact on domestic abuse on child exploitation, on our contentment in everything in life. But it's not true. And it's difficult to separate pornography from masturbation. I can can reduce a woman in my imagination to a collection of body parts to find sexual pleasure for myself. When you rip the intimacy factor out of sex, you depersonalize it. And this is why Amanda and I have have committed to each other to only engage in sexual activity together, never alone. It's a commitment we made to each other. And I don't mean having sex with other people. I'm talking about masturbation. Sex was not designed for me to reduce my wife into some image in my imagination and to be used for my sexual gratification. Sex was designed to intimately draw two souls into union with each other. So for us, sex is only together. Because we realize that even if we're thinking of each other during masturbation, when we take the other person physically out of the sex, we're reducing them to a smaller version of themselves. Now, please hear me. I'm not judging or condemning other couples if that's what they've, the conclusion they've come to. That's a decision between you and God and your spouse. I'm simply stating for us that masturbation apart from each other is still an, ob- it's still an objectification of the other, which we believe is lust in marriage. The human person is not a commodity to be consumed. When sex is depersonalized, relationships turn toxic. The third one that I want to touch on today is that relationships turn toxic when sex centers on narcissism. Toxic sexuality centers on narcissism. At a young age, we're trained into this, this narcissistic approach to our sexuality. You have a sex drive, You have this ingrained sexual hunger and it has nothing to do with anybody else's needs. All you need to concern yourself with is feeding your hunger. And I want to shoot straight with you this morning. Sex turns poisonous when it's divorced from giving. Sex gets poisonous when it's divorced from giving. Culture trains us though that sex is to be received, that it's to be experienced. So we sprint down that hill. Multiple partners, porn addictions, vivid imaginations, lack of self-control. And here's the thing. We can usher all of that into our marriages. A ceremony and a ring does not make toxic sexuality redemptive. Because you can abuse your spouse with sex. You can withhold sex from them. You can use it as a weapon against them. You can use your spouse as a collection of body parts for your pleasure. I can limit Amanda, I can diminish her and objectify her for my pleasure, but it will poison our relationship. Please don't get roped into a narcissistic approach to your sex life. It may satisfy you for the moment, but long-term, you will rot inside and your relationships will decay. When sex centers on narcissism, relationships turn toxic. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not only where we go wrong, but if these three components could be approached with some self-control, with some maturity, our relationships would take on a whole new life. So how do we partner with God in the redemption of our sexuality? I'd like to suggest the opposite of these three. I think it can be that simple. That redemptive sexuality is protected by covenant, that it personalizes the other, and it centers on service. Protected by covenant personalizes the other and centers on service. If we could learn to steward our sexuality, if we could learn to care for our sexual drives in the protective boundaries of covenant and in a way that honors the other as a person, as a soul, and in a way that serves rather than siphons life, we would begin to see slow and steady change in our relationships they would flourish. Relationships would flourish in a way we didn't even know was possible because we'd be learning how to use our sexuality how it was intended. It's actually possible to move into a redeemed sexuality where the drive doesn't control us, where we don't look at strangers, where we don't look at coworkers or significant others or spouses how we've always looked at them. So here's what I want to contend for this morning. To give sexuality a seat in the car but don't let it drive the car. (laughs) Give your sexuality a seat in the car, but don't let it drive. Sex, you get to join me on my journey, but you don't get to touch the steering wheel, and you don't get to pick the music. God's gift of sex and sexuality it's an invaluable contributing vendor um, sorry, it's an invaluable contributing member for your journey. He gave it to you. You need it. It matters significantly. But be careful how much power you give it. Because that, that drive, that sex, that sexuality, that thing that is deep inside of you, it can edify and beautify your relationships and your life, or it can poison and devastate them. And you get to choose what role it has in your life. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as we go into a time of response and worship through song. I also want to invite some of our leaders up for prayer. I don't know what you need today. I don't know how this has been stirring in your heart or in your mind. If this has been incredibly awkward for you or incredibly freeing for you. If both, Awesome. <laughs> At the very least, I just want to create a space where it's like, where we could say, like, it's okay to talk about real life. Sex and sexuality is real. It's deep in us. We need to be able to talk about it as church family. So if, as we lean into this song, maybe you just need to sung over you. Maybe you just need to sit in God's presence as he washes over you, as he refreshes you. Maybe as he convicts you and calls you to holiness. Maybe you need to offer this song up as a, as a worship sacrifice unto God. Maybe you need someone to stand with you in prayer. Maybe it has something to do with your sexuality. Maybe it has nothing to do with sex, and something got brought up, and you're just like, I just need someone to stand with me in this moment and pray over me. I don't know what you need in this moment, but I just want to encourage you to embrace that and lean into that. Whatever is God, whatever God's doing in your heart right now, that you say yes to it. I want to lift your spirits this morning that there's hope. I believe there's hope. When we look at culture, when we look at society, when we look at politics, even religion, sometimes we just, sex, it's just like, oh, there's so much, there's so much hurt. But I want to share this morning, there's hope. If we can learn to exercise self-control, if we can learn to approach our sex and our sexuality with new eyes, with new faith, with a redeemed filter, covenant, and personhood, and service, God can redeem our sexualities and our city can be a better place because of it. I believe that. Can you imagine, in a hypersexualized society like ours, the impact of even a small community like ours committed to redeeming sex? Committed to redeeming sexuality? I believe the impact would be profound in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, places of work, places of recreation. Profound impact. And redeeming sex is one of the beautiful things Jesus is up to in L.A. And today he beckons you, come to me, let me make you whole and watch what it does to your world. So, Jesus, we come to you again, broken, frail, so in need of your grace, so in need of your empowerment. We thank you that your spirit lives inside us, that you offer us power, that you offer us life. So I pray for courage to be able to say yes to your work in us, to be able to exercise self-control to honor the drive without letting it drive us and to give you a place at the center of our sexuality, God. So as we approach you once again, pray for faith to rise in us. Meet us here in this moment, we pray. Amen.